The Game Podcast is brought to you this week by Inked Gaming. If you're looking for a one-stop shop for gaming gifts this season, we suggest heading over to InkGaming.com. Starting November 22nd, Ink Gaming will be running their Black Friday sale, featuring playmats, dice bags, PC gaming mouse pads, and more. Stitch custom playmats and mouse pads are also now available. Your game, your style, Inked Gaming. Welcome to episode 104 of the Game Podcast. I'm Jerry Thompson. Here with me is Brian, the Victories Herald Gottlieb. Why? What did you do that well, that you won? I, I didn't win anything, but I'm going to herald some other victories right now. This was a tremendous weekend for supporters of the Game Podcast. I, I'm sure you've heard by now. A lot of champions and uh, really strong finishes among our supporters over in the Discord this week. I know that uh, Yo Man top aided the GP. Where was the GP? Milwaukee. Correct, Yo Man with a, his his first GP top eight going to the Pro Tour, which we're obviously very excited to see. He's someone whose presence in the Discord I think predates mine. Even I feel like he was there when I <laughs> came on the show, and just like somebody who is tirelessly working, digesting every piece of magic content and information they possibly could, and. Here's the payoff. Here's here's a GP top eight. So that was awesome to see. And we also have Nick Prince, who won the standard classic out in Las Vegas this week. Also true. I I kind of I kind of discount that because he snuck into top eight at four and two. Get out of here. We're not discounting anything. <laughs> he has the trophy in his possession. He is the champion. There's going to be no discounting whatsoever. And Nick Nick wanted to know what what he would have to win for you to uh, say that Song of Frey at least is playable. And I don't know. You you liked Song of Frey at least at first. Right. I don't know why I'm getting beat up for this. I think Song of Fraley's is a fine magic card. I just have my experience with the card in post-GRN standard has been underwhelming, and I've never found a way to make it work. But props to Nick for seizing a card that he absolutely believed in, despite the fact that nobody else is playing Song in their green-white builds. You know, He thought it was the, power, the most powerful way to go, kept refining his list. He's been playing basically this deck since the beginning of the format, I feel like, and was rewarded with a first-place finish. So props. Hell yeah. And as, as far as Yoman's concerned, I mean, his his presence makes the Discord infinitely better. And you are correct in that he absorbs all the different content, but he also makes content himself. So like does correct. a bunch of streaming and everything. So he's he's a very good example of, you know, you put in the work and good things will come for sure. Right. And it's like one very important distinction I want to make is like, this is not the game podcast discord making these people better the game podcast discord is a platform for people who want to get better and who show up and do the work and learn and they get all the credit for these triumphs because it existing doesn't make you a great magic player in and of itself it's the people who show up and really put forth an effort and it's, it's nice to see people rewarded for their hard work with really nice finishes absolutely so that out of the way we're going to talk about modern i have the SCG Invitational coming up at SCG Con. Unfortunately, it's the same weekend as Grand Prix Portland, uh, which is a nice like two and a half, three hour drive for me. So very sad that I can't make Portland because any GP within driving distance is just an absolute godsend, especially when you live on the West Coast. 
Right. And I'm getting a, a tremendous reward because my wife is actually going to be out of town that weekend. So I have to watch the dog. And in most instances, that would just mean, well, I can't GP this weekend. But I think I can just make that drive. I'm just going to drive out in the morning and drive back at night and take care of the dog that way. You know, there's basically one GP spot. I guess if you count Seattle, two GP spots in the entire country where I would be able to still attend on this weekend. So props for GP Portland. Good timing. Dude, that sounds crazy to me. It, it is crazy. It's not ideal. But I, I know a lot of fans of the game podcast are going to be there. Uh, there's a house of people who basically know each other from the Discord, a huge house. Uh, my head games co-host Jonathan Carter is coming out to the West Coast. And there's what? just a ton of people I want to see. Yeah. So I, I feel like I have to make the trip, even if it is a little challenging. I've certainly done worse back in my you know, PTQ days. And uh, a little two and a half hour drive in the morning is going to be fine. Well, I, I thought Jonathan was going to be at SCGCon because he, he lives on the East Coast and he was at the last one. And what the hell, man? Nope, you're missing out. Sorry. Oh, God. Oh, well. Next at time. least At least there's GP Vancouver. That's right. Another West Coast GP to look forward to. We're, this is like our period of uh, great wealth as far as GPs go. We usually Yo, have absolutely nothing. It's our time to shine. And then we got Oakland, which is just yep. a, a tiny flight. No big deal. But yeah, mm-hmm. we we talking about modern and recently, Matt Nelson did some crowdsourcing of the Grand Prix in Atlanta to try and establish like a metagame analysis and get those those numbers, that raw data that Wizards seems to be very keen on withholding, which I think is you know still up for debate whether or not it actually helps or hurts. Uh, and it's certainly up for debate whether it matters for like standard or modern or legacy too, so... Not really going to get into that, but I I do enjoy looking at this data, especially since it's very few and far between. And you were writing an article about this stuff for SCG. So just give me the breakdown, man. Tell me what you learned from all this. There's a lot to take away. And my article, which is going to go up, we're recording this Tuesday. It'll go up tomorrow. So by the time you're listening to this, it'll be out and you'll have read it, hopefully. My article goes into a lot of the questions behind should we be getting more data? Is data collection like this good for the game? We talk about all that stuff, but the fact of the matter is this is like the future. These efforts keep popping up across like Reddit and Twitter, and we're getting more and more data coming out of these large tournaments. And I think it's going to become an important part of every Magic player's arsenal to be able to analyze this data and make some conclusions. And the the hardest conclusions you can make from this set of data is do linear stuff and don't waste your time with anything else because answers in modern have always been and continue to be a losing proposition. For the second one of these metagame analysis in a row that I've seen, KCI looks absolutely dominant. In Matt's analysis, it posted a 59.18% win rate across 98 matches played. You know, there's sample size issues here. I, I'm never going to deny that. That's not the hugest sampling possible. But I, I've seen this trend a few times now, and I believe it. KCI is just incredibly resilient. It keeps picking up new technology, be it just using the stack properly, or now we're looking at Psy, Master Thopterist, which has given the deck a post-sideboard angle of attack that is potent, very real, uh, and and very difficult for decks to adapt to. So the broadest takeaway, focus on linear decks right now. More precise takeaways, 
KCI Hardened Scales is another deck which had an incredible performance. And I am an absolute believer in having now played with both of these decks on Moto. I bit the bullet and uh, ordered up some Mox Opals there. And I've been playing a bunch with them. They're they're real. They're probably very close to the best deck in the format, if not just the best decks in the format. You should buy my Mox Opals so I have an excuse to not play either one of these decks. Uh, it's too late. I've already got them. <laughs> Damn. So you're out of luck as far as that goes. That's too bad. And yeah, all the decks that are 50% and above are very linear decks. There are decks like Humans and Banned Spirits, which are linear, but with some disruption that yes. fall under, under that plus 50% category. And everything that's under 50% with a large enough sample size, it's it's just so funny to me. It's it's Grixis Shadow, Mardu Pyromancer, Jund, Black Green Midrange, Jeskai Control, Blue White Control. Blue White Control at the bottom with a 42% win rate. And all of these decks are just doing the same thing. They're like, oh, I'm going to try and control the game, maybe clock my opponent a little bit, but they're not doing anything inherently busted. Right. I, I mean, this is one of the clearest indications of where modern lies. And I have a feeling if we were sampling data throughout modern's history, you would see this over and over and over. Just because of the nature of the card pool, these linear style approaches often tend to be the way to go way to go sometimes it's tron uh you know it takes different forms sometimes it's storm it's it's taken all different forms throughout the format's history but in general my approach to modern has always been find the broken thing that is on the right axis and doesn't look to interact with your opponent in any real way and and like you said if you are interacting it has to be in a method the way Bant Spirits or Humans does, where all of your interaction is also further in your clock. That's the key. It's like you're still presenting this linear attacking game plan. It just happens to have some speed bumps included along the way. Right. Meddling Mage is not a better card than Thoughtseize in a vacuum, but as far as Modern is concerned and what you're trying to do in these formats, I mean, you, you absolutely want the 2-2 body attached to it, especially with the inherent synergies. Absolutely. Mausoleum Wanderer and Spell Queller, same thing. Like these are, are not some of the best possible cards, but the fact that they combine to form disruption with a powerful clocking package is what this is all about. Right. And I those cards specifically are much stronger in this metagame where the 50% and up decks are all decks that are weak to things like Spell Queller and Mausoleum Wanderer. Whereas Meddling Mage, Kite Sail, Freebooter, like they don't necessarily get the job done against a lot of these combo decks. Yeah, that's a good point. And that's why I think we've seen Banned Spirits rise over the past few months or so. Yeah, right now, certainly it is a slightly better version of humans. I would agree with that. And I think it's got some edge in the mirror as well, which also is always useful. Yeah, flying is very strong. Mm -hmm. So you're still on Amulet. Yes. What am I supposed to be doing? I, I keep trying to convince you to Amulet. And we're too talk stupid. About, you're not too stupid. That's another huge point I made in my article. Is like we we do this with modern decks, and I think like KCI hardened scales are the two where you would say too stupid. Amulet falls in that category as well. And I've been there. I've made that statement. Honestly, any capable Magic player, it's like you're getting close to. I mean, I don't know. These are completely arbitrary numbers, so it doesn't really matter. I was going to say you're getting close to like 98% proficiency after a couple of days. That's just nonsense. There's no way of knowing what proficiency level you're getting to, but you're getting the gist of what you're supposed to be doing very quickly. And when decks are posting like 60% win rates, just being a foundationally solid magic player and spending a day or two to get the gist of this deck 
is going to give you a better chance to win the tournament than like Jundin or something ridiculous like that, a deck that presents a 46% win rate. You know what I mean? So yeah, but maybe if, you're not if, optimal. What if I just want to go 10 and five, just lock it up and feel like I played my best, you know? If, that, if that's your goal, more power to you. There's a lot of options for doing that in modern. Uh, one of the things that makes modern special. But if you're out with bloodlust and looking to take down the tournament and leave no prisoners, I think you owe it to yourself to be realistic about your capabilities. If you spent a day just getting your KCI loops down and understanding it, you would be completely fine. If you spent an hour looking over hardened scales math and just getting like your mental shortcuts in line to figure out, okay, here's where I have lethal. Here's where I don't. Are you going to hit everything? Absolutely not. That takes, you know, these are the type of decks that do reward practice, but the rewards you're getting are that last like 0.01%, not the first 56% of win rate. You know what I mean? Right. No, for sure. So one of the things with hardened scales specifically is how much do you think that win rate is propped up by it preying on the sub 50% win rate meta versus it also being good against things that are surrounding it. Like it against uh, like KCI, Titan Shift, Amulet, Storm, Tron, like these these aren't matchups that I'm saying are, are bad for hardened scales, but they're ones that I don't know. Like I'm not exactly, you know, super informed as far as like hardened scales, but. I, th- I think my takeaway, and there's certainly people better suited to make this takeaway. I can only give what I've seen. I, I think you're mostly right that Hardened Scales is really beating up on those fair decks that people honestly probably just shouldn't be playing. But there's a few bright points along the way as far as the top tier matchups go as well. One of them being Dredge. At least the data sample we're dealing with here, you see a very positive Hardened Scales matchup. And they can do like a bunch of Tormod's Crypt backed up by a fast clock and the fact that you're i mean these aren't the same ravagers that we saw in typical affinity these ravagers fueling these massive hanger back walkers and uh massive walking ballistas they kind of changed the way matchups are played so i think you're getting a lot of edge and dredge and you also just have like some eye win draws you you retain those from old affinity and i don't think they're quite as pronounced you know, cranial plating is a heck of a card and there's some of that missing here, but you can still do it and you can still steal matchups. And and I think your floor is pretty good. It's not quite as dramatic as the floor of standard affinity. You're, you're getting closer to some, you know, your bad matchups are more like 40% matchups as opposed to 30% matchups. It looks like it doesn't even have that good of a win rate against humans, at least from this data, which is kind of surprising. I find that surprising as well, just because the walking ballista combination is so potent, but not having played the matchup a ton, you know, maybe there's a piece I'm missing. Maybe there's just like really easy meddling mage names that really shut down a lot of stuff they're doing. And and maybe it is just meddling mage on ballista gets you pretty far. I, I don't know. I would have to have more experience with it for sure. Yeah. No, these, these numbers are pretty good. It just seems like across the board, it's just like a slight favorite against a lot of things. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing that is really just smashing it. I mean, Titan Shift, it, it's 2-8 and eight against Titan Shift. But. Yeah, and I think maybe we'll get into that a little bit more because there seems to be a, an important card missing for this format. And maybe Titan Shift is one of the few decks that's appropriately picking it up. Yeah, so I don't know. It's, it's one thing to look at these win percentages and be like, oh, KCI is the best deck. And, you know, that's, that's all well and good. But if you're looking at stuff like uh, Hardened Scales, Boggles, Titan Shift... I think, depending on which 
of those decks you pick up, you have to think about where those percentage points are coming from. Like KCI mm-hmm. might just be good across the board, right? And then it doesn't matter. But if Titan Shift is really good against the fair decks and is losing against the top tier, then you don't necessarily want to pick up Titan Shift, even though it has a 54% win rate. Right. Very good point. And I, I think your first point was good as well. And I, I actually think that's the case. I think KCI is just kind of absurd, especially with a strong sideboard plan. Is It's all the difference. Like You can beat an opponent who goes turn two, rest in peace, turn three, stony silence. It, it's realistic. That can happen. You know, In the past, that would have been just game over in a bunch of spots. And, and KCI is much more resilient in its current form, as well as just having like this great combo clock in game one and being difficult to play against as well. A lot of people still don't know the matchup as well as they should. That is true. That's a good point. Yeah. I I, I look at KCI and I see people like Canister just crushing tournament after tournament. And it's like, well, I'm not as good as him, you know, but how much does that matter? I don't know. I, I think it matters less than most people think. That's my answer to that question. All right. Well, before this, I was thinking about playing some sort of arc light deck and I might still do that. But now you got me thinking about KCI. Well, so there's, let me make my case both for and against arc Like I'm going to do the, the lawyer thing that Josh Cho likes so much where I argue both sides of the equation. So I, I think there's something there with arc Light Phoenix. It's uniquely powerful and there's a lot of cards in modern that are set up to really take advantage of this spell heavy type approach. Uh, things like Thing in the Ice and Is It Charm and then there's free spells in Gutshot. It's, it's just not hard to really get a lot of value from those Arc Light Phoenixes. The problem is that it's basically in most of the configurations we're seeing right now, it's a very light interaction deck and it's using spells as its form of interaction as opposed to its clock with the exception of Thing in the, in the Ice, which is a card I really like right now. I, I think it's an interesting place um, and, and why this deck merits some more consideration. But for the most part, it's just like, okay, here's my lightning bolt I'm using to interact with you. Here's my is it charm. Here's my counter spells. It's not taking the hard linear approach. And that's because if it did, it would be a turn slower than all these other linear decks. It would not be successful just trying to go all in. At the same time, it's got some vulnerabilities to graveyard hate when Graveyard Hate is an important thing in the format right now. We've seen Dredge rise up over the past month or so uh, with the printing of Creeping Chills. So it has that vulnerability as well. I think there needs to be further refinement of the archetype. There is potential, but it needs to really carve out a niche for itself. It needs to understand what it's doing better than these other decks right now. Because right now it's just cool technology that doesn't really feel like it's pushing the meta in any particular direction. Right. The thing I will note about Graveyard Hate specifically is that with Thing in the Ice, Swift Spear, sideboard cards like Hazaret, Shrine of Burning mm-hmm. Rage, you can even like Experimental Frenzy, Chandra, whatever, like people overestimating Graveyard Hate is just, it, it's a benefit for you. Oh, you that's know, a good point. I, I do agree that the lack of interaction and uh, your clock being Lava Spikes in a lot of the decks, whether it's, you know, actual Lava Spike, Fiery, Temper, or Lightning Bolt, or whatever, like, is a little bit too slow, for sure. And these decks lack interaction, but being able to actually sidestep Graveyard Hate efficiently, I think, is pretty huge. Right. So, I I guess my takeaway would be, again, here's a deck that sounds like it's set up to really beat up on that lower class of decks, the decks that are answer decks. John, 
mid-range, Jeskai control, blue-white control, that's where I kind of see this deck sitting right now. If this deck is going to find success, it's going to do so when it finds a way to push those linear decks out of the format to find success against the KCIs and hardened scales. And again, there's a key card that I think a lot of these decks are missing, which we're going to get into and talk about. All right. So you want to jump right to this deck list dump? Yeah, let's let's do a deck list dump. You know, maybe a little bit more selective. We won't hit every single deck along the way, uh, at, l- at least not a deep dive on every single deck. But I want to talk through what exists in the modern format right now and kind of where we see it fitting in. Right. So... Uh, first one is uh, Gasper playing Infect, and this is one of those decks that had a sub-50% win rate and did recently top 8 uh, GP Atlanta in the hands of Kazu Negri, but I do feel like is one of those decks that is very bad against the mid-range meta, but like p- potentially very good against the upper tier. Yeah, it's weird, right? Because that's been the wrap on this deck basically from the beginning and in a tournament we're looking at gp atlanta where the linears rose to the top you would think that if in fact navigated through those elimination rounds it would find some success and uh, indeed we saw that with a top eight appearance but we're looking at a 45 percent win rate here which is pretty low uh one of the lowest out of the larger sample sizes we got here so i I guess i want to reevaluate that take that this is like the way to go when you're doing linear stuff it makes sense to me right the clock should be faster than those decks and if you're just racing here's the deck that always wins the race but maybe there's a piece of the equation we're missing there maybe these linears are set up in a way that they can punish these decks and i mean let's talk hardened scales right if that deck gets to basically do anything in the early turns it's going to be very difficult for affinity to mount any kind of offense against, or excuse me for in fact to mount any kind of offense against them I agree completely. It's also somewhat troubling that a lot of these decks like Titan Shift and Storm and even KCI had humans on their radar for so long that they started just playing a bunch of lightning bolts in their sideboard and Mm -hmm. mixing them too because of Meddling Mage, but functionally the same thing. And if you have some spot removal that allows you to buy time to get to your more powerful combo, then, you know, that was basically the edge that Infect had was that Glistener off on turn one was basically unbeatable. Like you were, you were going to set up a turn three kill almost certainly. Right. Right. And maybe that's gone away to some extent. Yeah. So that could be the problem. It could just be that even the linear decks are still like, they, they have too much of a, a shot against you post board rather than just being completely dead to your plan, which they used to be. Right. Uh, next deck is Killmaster P playing, playing some goblins. I like this. Do you? I mean, like, I I like that it exists. I don't. This <laughs> okay. is not a deck that I would ever register. This is not a deck that I think is particularly good against fair decks or linear decks. Yeah. It is just trying to kind of do an infect thing, honestly, where you're hoping to set up like turn three kills and stuff. And I don't know, like, may, maybe it is kind of consistent because you have eight wax and a bunch of one drops and stuff, but you still have a lot of the same problems where it's like even one lightning bolt might just slow you down to the point where you're not actually, you know, killing until turn five. Yeah. Beware the worst version of an existing deck. Right. And is this the worst version of infect? It might be. I mean, it doesn't really add any wrinkles with the exception of having access to lightning bolt. And then the white sideboard cards that we see here, we see rest in peace, stony silence in the sideboard. So it's trying to back up those cards with a clock, which I I think you mostly have to do. You can't just sit on them forever anymore. 
And by virtue of being basically a mono red deck in the main, it's able to choose splashes and get access to these powerful white cards. I don't know that that's enough, though, to make this a worthwhile choice in the format. I agree with that. It is cool that this deck is not messing around and just playing four Grim Lava Mancer's main deck, which is a way to interact with the tribal decks that might be doing the thing better than you. Mm, that's true. So that's that's a cool piece of interaction that not a lot of decks actually get to take advantage of. Very good point. Next deck is Double B33 with Storm. Uh, pretty normal. It looks like people are not really playing PGOs to Pyromancer Ascensions anymore. Hard to know what I make of that. I, I mean, I guess, like, again, if we're going to talk graveyard hate, don't lean harder on your graveyards. Find ways to get around that. And we see that with a main deck, Empty the Warrens here. So there's a very reasonable plan about, you know, not doing past and flame stuff and just ritualing a few times and getting paid on your Empty the Warrens. Storm is another one of those decks that, like, if we look at the data we were talking about previously, we're looking at a 50% win rate. I'm not sure exactly what Storm is targeting. It's like... uh pinch slower than some of the linears. I guess you're getting some lightning bolts as interaction at points. It could just be one of those things when people don't have a lot of spot removal and your Electromancers and Barals are going to always get to live. That might be when you're pushing really hard on this deck and finding a home for it. Are we in that spot right now? It's hard to say. I, I mean, if you look at the, t- the top decks, the linears that are succeeding, you can say they're a little bit removal light. And maybe it is the time for Electromancer and Baral to show up and do some damage. But it's it's the same thing with the Glistener Elf problem, right? Where like game one, yes, these things are basically unkillable. They're not going to die. But in the post-board games, game two. How, do you, how do you deal with them just never living? That's a good question. And, you know, we've seen some approaches, but none of them super excite me. Uh, playing Storm without one of those creatures in play is kind of an exercise in frustration. A lot of your cards are so underpowered in that scenario. So, yeah, it, it's tough. It's it's tough to find good ways to win without it. And uh, there's very few Storm Masters who continue to dominate with the deck. I'm not one of them and, and probably will not pick this deck up anytime soon. Yeah, so 50% win rate is pretty bad, especially considering... Caleb, Paul, and Oliver Tomiko were all playing Storm. And I know that Oliver went uh, 12-3. and Caleb was 11-0 at one point. And I assume that, like, Paul was doing reasonably well. So, like, that 50% win rate is also being propped up by three very good players playing the deck. Yeah, and that's one of the problems with this data. And I talked about that a little bit more in my article is that since a lot of these results come from the top 32 deck lists, you are naturally biased to kind of self-selecting the decks with high win percentages and excluding some of the other stuff, which makes those win percentages even higher in turn. Uh, So there there are issues with this kind of limited approach to data. I think as these data collection efforts get bigger and bigger and get more and more results into the system, we'll start to even those out a little bit. Well, I'm I'm interested in doing like the full amount for PT Cleveland. This is kind of off topic, but I, I think it would be cool to just have a person whose job was there collecting data, not necessarily for scouting or anything. Like, I would prefer to not scout during a tournament, basically, and just mm-hmm. like kind of not know what my opponents are playing. But like to have the data after the fact, I think would be really cool, especially for a pro tour. So I'm kind of interested in finding a person to do that and just get everything instead of self-selecting. I mean, that sounds great for our, for our purposes, right? We rely on this information for content and to be able to keep our listeners informed. Um, so having access to that, I mean, it would be spectacular for us. At some point when these data collections become good enough, 
do we just get all the data back? I, I mean, I know you used to get every single deck list at a Pro Tour. That's the way it used to work. And once data collection becomes good enough, maybe we'll return to that point because it's just kind of silly to withhold things at that point when we're getting the data anyway. We're just adding this extra layer of work that we know is going to be done. Yeah, I don't know. It'd be interesting to see. I mean, I don't know how often I could keep it up. Like, I don't know if I could do it for like every GP or GP day two or whatever, but I'm sure during the pro tour could just have someone on site getting all the data. Absolutely. And the more we talk about this, the more people are going to be interested in contributing to these type of projects. That's what I mean. It's like you can't put this genie back in the bottle as soon as people start these data collection efforts and see that they're yielding valuable information. There's just going to be more and more of it going on. Well, I could certainly try and just, you know, break down the wall if you want me to, if you convince me that it's worth it. We'll see. <laughs> like, so looking looking at this matchup spread, again, kind of off topic, is just like if the problem is, or the perceived problem of modern is that all of the decks are linear. You got like the, the two ships passing in a night type of thing where you're just goldfishing each other. Like looking at this data, it actually does look like it, right? But like we're going to discuss ways to actually you know, help the metagame shift and everything. But like having this data, it wouldn't be like, oh man, everyone plays KCI, right? It's like people start playing decks that are actually good against KCI. That's what would happen. That is the argument to be made. And that is what happens in other games. We've done things this way for so long. There's like some joy and charm in figuring out the right question. Like getting to this point where you make the conclusion that selecting the best linear deck in modern is the correct thing to do. I mean, that's like a two or three year process for me where I eventually got it, you know, beat into my head. Okay, this is how you approach modern and taking that away and just being like, yeah, the data tells you that. Why wouldn't you do that, idiot? I mean, it seems a little inelegant, but it is what it is. I mean, it's it's just a different way to play magic. And like we've, we've always talked about, I'm fine with all approaches to magic. Whatever rules you want to put in front of me, whatever circumstances I have to work under, I'll figure ways to get to the best deck. Word. Uh, Next deck, Elf Kid playing mono green tron which is it's elf e elf like elf adjacent definitely green it is green how do you feel about the karn father i don't know i mean it's never bad right it's it's like never a bad choice it's so inherently powerful turn three karn beats basically everything there's less of the like four spreading seas four field of ruin type stuff going around not that you couldn't beat that as tron you certainly did a fair amount of the time Main deck Relic of Progenitus is a nice card right now. I mean, Tron has a lot of things going for it, but it it always does. And our data points to about a 50% win rate for Tron, which sounds about right. Uh, I mean, it's got game against everyone. The meta isn't specifically targeting it right now. And that has me leaning a little bit towards this being an acceptable choice. Uh, but I don't think it's like a world beater or anything. It's It's not the only way to go into a tournament. Walking Ballista has also just been one of the cards that has kind of crept up a lot recently. And I guess now the Tron decks, instead of playing four, kind of going back towards like three and two as uh, humans is no longer like the agreed upon best deck or whatever. But right. yeah, Walking Ballista in Tron and Hardened Scales is just doing a number on creature decks and just fair decks in general. It really is. Uh, it's an incredibly powerful card in these archetypes that can leverage it. And Amulet, too. Uh, a great two to target and can completely take over sure. games out of Amulet. Next deck is from Jasperov. This is a Bant, Knight of the Reliquary, Retreat to Coralhelm deck with Jace the Mind Sculptor and Collected Company. Only 25 hits for Collected Company. 
four Knight of Autumn main deck, which is kind of cool. Also four Tireless Tracker, which I support. But this is exactly where you don't want to be right now. What do you make of the argument, though, that like I'd rather see a version like this that at least has a combo kill and can present like pretty explosive wins out of nowhere than just like here are my stupid creatures. Like I I'd take this over green, white value town any day of the week. Yeah. It- yeah, of course. Of course. But just, so the fact that you can turn two night, turn three retreat and just kill them is huge for sure. Mm-hmm. But if you're trying to do that sort of thing, like why not just play the devoted druid decks, especially with the postmortem lunge? Right. And that's something we're going to come back to a lot. Don't play a worse version of a deck that already exists. Yeah. L337 Urhosen. So Leader Urhosen. Yeah, I think so. Mono White Martyr. I'm sure you love this deck. This is right up your alley. It's cool. I don't know how this beats anyone. Uh, Ghostly Prison is a good magic card. Which Against some decks. Which are four of here. <laughs> yeah. I mean, w- when we're talking about the format being hyperlinear, doing something like Martyr of Sands doesn't make a lot of sense, right? Like, it, it just isn't checking any of the boxes you really care about. Um, if you get the right pairings, your day is going to be a joke. But I don't think you need to play the pairings lottery right now. Just find the linear deck that's got game against most of the field and, and lean on that as hard as possible. Don't do not do these weird quasi-answer decks. Four Field of Ruin, four Ghost Quarter, Sideboard Surgical is kind of cute. Ghostly Prison, Martyr of Sands, Wrath of God is kind of cute for some matchups. But yeah, this this is just not doing it for me. I'm with you. Jay Robles with uh, some Bring Delight Scape Shift action. There was a point where I thought, uh, a few various points actually, where I thought like a, a blue combo control deck was good, even though your average turn is like turn five, mm-hmm. because you have the things like remand and whatnot to stave off the other combo decks. And not only do I not think that remand is particularly great against all these decks with super low mana curves, but uh, Shift itself is not a fast enough kill. When you add Bring Delight to the mix, you're not getting enough utility to justify the additional colors and, you know, cutting of like your actual combo pieces like scape shift. And yeah, basically if I was going to do this, I would just play uh amulet or primeval Titan or the Rick green delicate deck. I think this deck had a minute where the sweepers and reliable access to the sweepers was something really meaningful in the format. I think that minute has passed and I agree with you. This does not seem like anything I'm interested in right now. Just Turn slower than the rest of the linears. If you want Wraths, if there's a point where we get back to where you just need to have access to early Anger of the Gods and Damnations, then this deck is a lot more appealing. But that does not strike me as the format we're currently in. Next up, we have Ed B., my homie, who unfortunately does not seem to be playing a ton of Magic these days, but just absolute master, sheer genius, and is not surprising to me that he has my favorite deck in this entire decklist dump. This is, this is Mono Red, uh, Arc Light Phoenix, what you've kind of normally seen with like Faithless Looting, Fiery Temper, Lightning Bolt Metamorphose, Bedlam Reveler, but this one incorporates Burning Query, Goblin Lore alongside Hollow One and Flameblade Flame Adept to kind of mash up the two decks. Also has uh, a couple gut shots for cheap ways to bring back Arc Light Phoenix and two Maximize Velocities. All right, go to town. Tell me why this is a, a real deck in this format. So, Burn is typically good when there are decks that can't interact with it, right? And Mm -hmm. it doesn't really matter if 
Well, it does matter. It's just like you can't play burn in a field of turn three combo decks, right? But if the average turn of the format is 4.5 or something and people can't interact with your burn spells, then burn is good. And the Arclight Phoenix decks, one of their biggest selling points is the fact that they have ways where opponents can't really interact with them, where they have things that allow them to rely on the graveyard, but they also have like the lava spike angle. So it's really tough to have a matchup that interacts with you on every single meaningful axis, right? Mm. But there are some decks where just being fast is a, a better way to beat them than interacting with them. And I think that that is kind of what this deck is going for in addition to having these pre-built ways to just ignore graveyard hate. How fast do you think this deck realistically is? Like, what is your average average clock here? I mean, it's turn four, but there's nine ways to interact with creatures in the main deck, and you mm-hmm. have a lot of ways to close the game, too. So even if, like, blue-eye control is slowing you down or you have to use some removal to slow down humans, I think that just works in your favor, as far as playing against something like KCI, yeah, I do think that your goldfish is going to be a little bit slower, but uh, that is hopefully where your sideboard can kind of come in. But just the fact that you have Flame Blade Adept and Hollow One, and you can just take out the Revelers and bring in things like Shrine of Burning Rage, and you just don't care about the graveyard anymore, I think is huge. Yeah, there's some great sideboard technology here. I really love the sideboard Eidolon of the Great Revel. Um, you know, some decks that we're talking about that are in kind of the problem zone are just going to fold fairly hard to that card. Uh, I I think like this is the deck you want if those three damage removal spells are particularly good. And I mean, maybe against things like Bant Spirits and Humans, this is actually exactly where you want to be and does a nice job cleaning those up while still resisting the fair decks really well. If you told me that was the kind of niche this deck was trying to carve out, I, I could buy that. I, I can see that being a, a point of success for decks like this. You know, still some inconsistency stuff going on, but you're playing a Goblin Lore Burning Inquiry deck, so you signed up for that. And Let's I, go. Let's roll the dice. Right. Let's I, do I, it. I do love the sideboard tech here. I think I think Eidolon's a fantastic addition to the style of deck and not what I've really seen before. So definitely props on that. Yeah, I, I really like the idea of having maximized velocity alongside Bedlam Reveler too. Hmm, very cool. Even just Hollow One. I mean, I, I think that card is a nod to this deck needs to be a little bit faster. And, and Flame Blade Adept. Let's not forget how big that card can get in a lot of instances. Oh, yeah. And Hollow One, like the black version with Blood Gas and stuff, was not really a big portion of the GP Atlanta metagame, even though uh, Martin Juza made top eight with it. And mm-hmm. like he he did really well. Like, he went 14-0 in the Swiss before finally losing. And... I think it's just one of those things where if your deck is fast, sometimes that's good enough. Yeah, that's a good way of looking at it. Next up, we have Junior 97 with humans. Kind of split with one Anafens of the foremost main deck alongside two Militia Buglers, three Reflector Mages, three two-drop Thalias. So can't really seem to decide what three-drop is better. And then the sideboard is fairly normal. I don't know. Riders of Gavany for the Mirror cool. So you've played a little humans lately. Do you have any opinion on the deck, where it stands? Uh, do you Are you a buyer in humans right now? So for all we talk about, like, oh man, like, is this deck fast enough to beat KCI? Can it, can it uh, like disrupt them and interact with them? I don't think the games always play out the same way. And I think it's really important to recognize that. The fact where it's like, well, if this deck doesn't kill on turn 3.5, it's just not viable because... Despite 
playing in that format. I had so many games where that went to like turn eight, turn nine. And certainly that is a product of me playing humans and them either having removal or siding into removal or whatever. But I did not play with Militia Bugler because I kind of like pigeonholed myself into thinking that the format was going to be that turn 3.5 thing. And mm-hmm. it just wasn't. So this was one of the arguments I made initially when Cedric was very firmly anti-Bugler. And I think a lot a lot of that was because he was playing on Magic Online. He's just like, well, played against Storm, played against Tron, played against Valakid or whatever. And he couldn't find a matchup where Bugler was actively good. And I don't, I, I wouldn't have said that Bugler would be like actively good against hardened scales or whatever, but it certainly would have been great for me in the games that played out where we're just kind of like, you know, we have this board stall and we're both kind of flooding out or whatever. It's just like that happens in the games. And I think it's really important to realize that the, the games don't always play out the same way. So if I were playing humans, I would absolutely play Bugler. I don't care what percentage of the metagame you said was combo, unless it's like 60% or whatever, but it's not. So, yeah, I I think humans is fine. It is exactly okay. Like, spirits is likely a better version of it. But if I were playing humans, I think Bugler does show shore up those instances where you, you know, get flooded out or they have some removal or whatever. Like, even the post-board games against KCI, they have a bunch of removal spells against you and you kind of want Bugler, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and let's not forget your deck's kind of one of its primary functions is slowing the game down. I mean, Kitesail, Freebooter, Meddling Mage, Thalia, these are cards which delay the pace of the game and push it into later turns in some instances while still presenting a clock. So I I think it does a disservice to expect that all the games just end on turn four or turn five when your deck is basically built to prevent your opponent from winning the game on turn four or turn five. Like that's your entire purpose in the early turns when you're in those matchups. And certainly you're pushing that purpose even harder in post-board games. So to your point, I I think there's still a place for the bugler for sure. Right. And then the games, after you freebooter them a couple times, the games become, okay, can I find another disruption piece right. to buy me some time? So Bugler finding Phantasmal Image or Kite Sail Freebooter, Meddling Mage, whatever, are all super important after you disrupt them a little bit. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you could just find a Thalia's Lieutenant and potentially kill them, and that's great, but that's just another upside. Right, right. Next deck is Alex Straza U. Alex Straza U, I guess? Yeah, I think so. So you're... Yeah, you're at 15. I didn't know if it was, yeah, I didn't know if it was like Alex Straw Zow, like, (laughs) but yeah. (laughs) I guess guess it could be. See, this is the elf deck. This is, this is uh, keyword fast. That is exactly what this deck is trying to do. I think it is not quite fast enough. Uh, My take as well. Yeah, I I mean, like, there's probably some excitement when. I'm I'm blanking on the card name. Is it Beast Whisper? Is that the four mana glimpse of nature yes. on a stick? Yep. Uh, there was probably some excitement when that card showed up, but if you just think about it, it makes sense that that's not actually a direction the elves need to go. They need to end the game very quickly. This deck is cognizant of that fact with Shaman of the Pack, but it's going to be behind all the linears with almost no disruption whatsoever. And post board, it's not getting much better in terms of the disruption you're looking at. So. If you get the matchups, you're probably fine. If you're playing against the winner's metagame, I don't think you're going to have a lot of success with this style of elf deck. I will say that with the tools that elves has in the games that I was talking about with humans, where the game kind of slows down, you know, players are flooding out, whatever your cards are trading. Elves has a ton of ways to like sneakily get in a lot of damage and, 
I think they're very good at at operating under those games, even though like you think of Azuri as just like, you know, your card if your cards never die, then Azuri's great. But even still, I think just like Azuri beating down alongside a couple other things, and then you like nickel and dime people out with Shaman of the Pack is perfectly reasonable. So that aspect is cool, but I still think that this deck is worse than humans, worse than spirits, worse than probably the Arclight decks, even at being fast. So yeah. wouldn't touch it. Yep, I'm with you. Uh, we have some hardened scales next. I, you want to try and pronounce this name? No, I don't actually. I, I assume. I, yeah, I don't know, man. It, it starts with Paro. It ends with brutal. I don't know if the middle part is multiple words or whatever. I could probably yeah, just type it, this into Google. It's it's very hard to pull up. Paro Lametmos brutal is would be my guess. I don't even know if that's close, but they were picking up hardened scales and. They are featuring the kind of new piece of Hardened Scales tech that has popped up recently in Llanowar Reborn. Uh, I do think that card deserves a place here. It's quite good and can start those chains off uh, very quickly where you're doing absolutely absurd Arcbound Ravager stuff. Uh, you're, you're not super mana hungry at a lot of points in the game. So this is just like a nice pickup for this deck. Yeah, this is a great deck. It, it has a lot of angles of attack, You know, some damping spheres, post board to do some disruption type stuff and try and slow opponents down. I, I don't think you're playing this to necessarily target the linears, but you're fine against them. You have a chance. You're able to present a quick enough clock with some light disruption. Uh, and you're just beating up on all the decks that fold to a particularly large walking ballista while still just getting a fast clock in a bunch of games. So this deck is completely legit and a totally defensible choice for any tournaments coming up. So it means, but we put him brutal, and it's the name of a song. Okay. By Chino and Nacho. Moto name facts. Yeah. I'm sure this person is ecstatic. We've devoted a very long portion of the show <laughs> to discussing their name at this point. Next deck is Fugu, and here here it is. Here's the hollow one. Just perfectly normal. Uh, a couple fatal pushes, main deck, and ancient grudge in the sideboard. Keyword fast. And that's about it. <laughs> get it done. Kill your opponent very quickly. Post board, you get to Thoughtseize. And here is the card, the first appearance of the card I've been dying to mention. Where are all the ancient grudges, Jerry? Why aren't ancient grudges showing up everywhere? Why aren't these arc-like Phoenix decks that are trying to uh, do weird splashes for like collective brutality? Why aren't they splashing ancient grudge when the two top performing decks in the format are KCI and Hardened Scales Affinity? Riddle me that. A, I do not support any blue-red Phoenix deck splashing for collective brutality. That's nonsense. Absolute nonsense. You're telling me that in order to beat Burn, you're going to fetch up an off-color dual land? Really? <laughs> it does seem a little dubious now that you put it that way. And, it like, you could just side rest for the wary or whatever. And I realize that brutality has some, like, fine overlap or whatever, but come on, you know? So, yeah, you could splash Ancient Grudge. I think that... Up until now, there hasn't been a huge necessity for it in the mono-red versions. Playing 18 Mountains is kind of cool. It feels nice. Uh, And adding fetch lands and dual lands and whatnot to the mana base is certainly not free. But I I think there are enough ways that you could just play Ancient Grudge for relative freeness anyway. Like, say you play like six fetches, some copper line gorges, you still have metamorphos. I mean, it's it's really not that hard. So Yeah. yeah. People played Shattering Spree or a Braid before, and I think Ancient Grudge is kind of what's up right now. 
I totally agree with you. It seems very underrepresented as it stands right now. Completely fine card in a bunch of matchups and the most important card in a bunch of other matchups. So bring back Ancient Grudge. It's time for this card to shine again. Yeah. Next up, we have the Floatist playing uh, blue-red, basically control, no Blood Moon, kind of interesting, but uh, through the Breach Emrakul. There was a point where we were really high on through the Breach strategies. Um, there was like a week, yeah. Like blue blue combo control decks, man. Yeah, and it's kind of the same question, right? Like where this red-based disruption and anger of the gods is particularly good, you can make a case for this style of deck. But I, I feel like we're kind of just repeating the scapeshift argument here. Uh, a lot of these cards are not particularly well positioned right now. And your combo is like kind of difficult to assemble and your turn slower than a bunch of stuff. So it doesn't feel like this is how you get the job done right now. But this deck always like pops up out of nowhere and just smashes a tournament. Uh, and it, it's always interesting when that happens. Well, the question is whether or not the disruption that you have access to, in this case, counter spells, is good enough against the top tier combo decks to slow them down to get it to the point where you can find through the breach emrakul because through the breach emrakul is just a very good combo kill mm-hmm. similar similar to scapeshift except scapeshift requires a lot of setup right and you know through the breach emrakul is just so clean and they just they have to live in constant fear of it like they never know if they have to just like jam kci this turn try and go for it because you could just 15 them and kill all their permanents next turn yeah, uh, it's, it's a tough puzzle to solve from that side of the, the board. And you get some play against the control decks as well, which is certainly uh, a, a point in this deck's favor. Being able to do your combo at instant speed is nice. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I mean, it's not like I think this deck is unplayable or anything. It's just I, I don't know what it's targeting particularly well. The absence of Blood Moon is strange here, right? Like, Blood Moon is not always... It, it's a little overhyped in a lot of instances, but like, if I'm this style of deck, there's a bunch of matchups I want it. I, I want access to it, and I'd rather use my sideboard slots for something like that than say like roast or a bunch of yeah. other cards that are showing up here for surgical extractions. Well, obviously, Dredge is just a completely heinous matchup for the stack. Sure, and you're not fixing that with four surgical extractions. So no, uh, well, four surgical, four snapcaster. At least you have a shot. But yeah, Field of Rune as your non-basic land hate of choice over Blood Moon. Doesn't strike me as correct, but who knows? Yeah. This deck getting access to Vendillion Click is nice, though. Yeah, not a card we see much in modern these days. It's strange, actually, how little play Vendillion Click sees. Well, it's so bad against Ballista. That is true. That is true. Next deck, we have Pikachu. And this is it. This is your baby. You can just tell tell me all about Zakama Primal Calamity and why you're not playing it in Amulet. Because it doesn't do anything and you don't need to go down these silly roads. Like if you're if you're at nine mana, you've probably cast a primeval titan and primeval titan answers all your problems. You just have to be a little bit more creative. And when you're doing like Radiant Fountain or Colony Garden shenanigans, you will find a way to get your answer uh, if you work hard enough. And the Zakama doesn't really clear up any huge problems you might have that I've seen in my experience. I think Zakama is mainly for humans. Sure, but you can beat humans. It's not like you're a huge dog to humans and now you have this really like gross, horrible big thing <laughs> in a bunch of your opening hands that completely invalidates them. And I, I don't know. I, basically, I, I do have another creature in this spot. I've been playing Ramunap Excavator, 
Uh, I think you get a lot more utility in a lot of other spots. Uh, you can do really tricky stuff when you get Ghost Quarter into the mix and Azusa. And there's all kinds of new setups you get access to. Um, you respond to you know, Field of Ruin very well. Uh, it's much easier to set up Cavernous Souls against Faradex, things like that. I, I found a lot of utility for the card, basically, and I'm very happy with it filling that slot. Most of what's going on here is completely fine. The other card I actually really hate in these lists is Explore. I feel like it just doesn't do anything. Uh, it's, it's never meaningfully contributing to the outcome of the game. I'm sure like I've set the amulet discord on fire right now and they're all bashing me about how <laughs> Explorer is uncuttable. But if I were playing GP Portland tomorrow, I would have zero Explorers in my amulet deck. I would have three Adventurous Impulse and a 28th land. I've been playing uh, Scryland, the blue green Scryland Temple of Mystery, I think, in that slot. And been happy with it. I think you could consider like a Halamar Depths as well as perfectly reasonable. But I, I honestly love this deck. It has a bunch of play in so many situations. You feel like you're never really out of any matchup except Blood Moon, which you can never beat in a million years. But we haven't seen many Blood Moons thus far in our roll through this format. And I think that's pretty true. I think Blood Moon's at kind of a low ebb. So I'm into Amulet. I, I think it's a lot of fun to play and it's been a lot of fun to learn over the past month or so. 52% win rate doesn't scare you? A small sample size, so that could either swing up or down, I think, pretty easily. We're looking at only 56 matches played. Um, that's still, you know, tops, what are we looking at? Top seven, top eight of the most played archetypes. So, no, I wouldn't say that scares me. Um, as far as, like, do we have fear of the linears? You can win on... I've, I've won many games on turn two. In fact, I got paired against Burn the other day and won back-to-back games on turn two, and I could just like feel the salt emanating from <laughs> across the internet. But you have turn two kills. You have turn three kills. They're not super prevalent, but they're there, and they're something you have access to. And then you have some light disruption that you can get um, to kind of throw a wrench in their plans. There's a lot of tricky stuff you can do, a lot of angles you can find. And that's really what I've been looking for in my modern deck, something that feels adaptable and like I have a lot of control over the outcome of any given match I play. And uh, I found that in Amulet. So I'm pretty into the deck right now. I think it's a fine choice if you're willing to put in a little bit of work to learn it. It's pretty rare to have that when you're talking about like a turn two, turn three, turn four combo deck. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Next deck is uh, Mr. And then uh, a French word that I don't know what it means. I could look that up too. Yeah, I don't, I don't know that one either. And I, I took many years of high school French, and it's not clicking with me. Well, this is Just Guy Control. And this this was the account that uh, a lot of people said was Waffle Tapa for a while, but oh, I don't think it is. That I mean, that could potentially make sense, given what we're seeing played here. The, don't, don't play this deck. I mean, I feel like we've done like this. I, I know you did an entire article on why Just Guy is a poor choice. So why don't you just take it away? Tell everyone why they still should not be playing this deck. Jeskai is a deck that you would ideally want to play in a format with a lot of creatures and you have some amount of defense against combo decks, but not nearly enough. And you also don't have any sort of closing speed against them. And this deck makes that even worse by only playing two Celestial Colonnage, which is kind of a thing I agree with, but uh, is ultimately not going to help you against combo. So yeah, this deck, it's... Plan A almost is to just like burn its opponents out after cryptic commanding a couple of its stuff. Uh, Jonathan Rossum said that this was basically a turn four combo deck in that 
Uh, all of your cards have traded by turn four, except you're up two cards. And in some modern formats, I would buy that. And in this one, I just don't think that that is a reasonable way for you to play out any of the games. Yeah, I'm entirely with you. And I would extend most of those arguments to blue-white versions as well, except like the problem is maybe a little bit worse. The only good thing is you're doing like rest in peace main, which I do think is a fairly strong decision right now but not strong enough to ultimately push me towards the deck. Right. Next deck is uh, VFS, who is uh, Victor Fernando Silva. The thing that I remember VFS for is tricking me into playing OG Aurelia main deck of in my Flash deck. When I went to GP Strasbourg, I was chasing Platinum, and Aurelia was awful, and I did not make day two, so I believe him. (laughs) So you have no faith in this new uh, Esper Charm plan, I'm assuming? Yeah, blue-white control... Splashing for some fatal pushes and Esper charms. I'm I'm not about it, but at least there are no Aurelias in this deck. Uh, there's also sideboard unmoored ego, which seems unmoored, to be unmoored ego is fine. I yeah. have nothing against unmoored ego. I, I think this style of card being a mana cheaper than it's typically been in the past. It's nice. It, it's a point of, I mean, at least like there's efforts to address what's going on with the format, right? Something like Unmoored Ego is going to be very good in a lot of spots. And there's some other light disruption here in Inquisition and things like that. So you can see like some consciousness of what the format is about with this style of Esper. It's still just a bunch of answers though. And I I don't think that's the way forward in this format. Agreed. Uh, Next deck is Stoneheart playing Merfolk. Uh, Notable inclusions main deck are four copies of Spellpierce, which I actually like. Do you like it enough to see any reason to play this over something like Ban, Ban Spirits? Uh, when you put it that way, no. Not not in a million years. That's, that's the problem I, I get to, to as well. Yeah, I would rather have my clocks be the disruption too instead of having to decide whether or not I like tap out for Grizzly Bear or hold open Spell Pierce. And also Spirits just gets more of this stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Because you have more creatures that disrupt them and collected companies and stuff like that. And yeah, Merfolk is still just a pile of creatures, which has a lot of similar problems to elves. You know, it's like, oh man, are my spell pierces and spreading seas enough to slow you down? Probably not. Yeah. If we were still doing like the onboard creature combat thing, it's nice that your things never get blocked and you make a bunch of bodies, but that's not what we're doing anymore. So I'm, I'm going to pass on Merfolk still probably till the end of time. I will pass on Merfolk. Uh, next up, we have Alex draws at you, w- this time with blue-white control instead of elves. Uh, wait, were they they were the elves player last time? They were. Yeah. <laughs> it's a dramatic change. Just just playing both ends of the spectrum. Yeah, blue-white control, same deal with Jeskai for the most part, except having a wall of hard counters is it can be actively good against the combo decks. I would say that the combo decks... Uh, since then have kind of adapted and are able to work around that well enough, but maybe that's not the case. But even still, I mean, blue-white control is literally the deck with the worst win rate from GP Atlanta, at least for like large sample sizes. So take that for whatever it's worth. Yeah, I think there is a good reason for that. And again, if you want to do this with rest in peace, I I like that better. Uh, Still not enough to sell me though. Nah. Uh, Next up, QEL33 with... Bridgevine. This this has some white sideboard cards off a of godless shrine. Two bushwhackers, some dredge elements, I guess. One Golgari thug, one dark blast. So kind of a weird build, but 
Still pretty uh, cool. I'm disappointed not to see any chamber sentries here, but this this was kind of your your thing for a minute. Where did this deck go? I mean, did it just get outmoded by like Phoenix stuff or Dredge really getting creeping chill? Was was that what pushed this out of consideration? Or did it turn out that the pieces just weren't there and this deck maybe, you know, was actually never good enough? So Dredge was a little too fast and didn't have a whole lot going for it. This was more on the the keyword fast end of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of why I thought it could be potentially good. And I don't know. Since then, yeah, like Dredge is basically just a, a better deck than this in a vacuum now with Creeping Chill. And everyone is very cognizant of it. Like there was a couple weeks where Dredge was super hot and Graveyard Hate was at the forefront of everyone's mind and kind of guided what their deck selection was going to be and everything. And now it's just like, how could you possibly expect to win with a Vengevine deck? You know? Yeah, I, I don't have an answer for that. Yeah, there's there's just not a whole lot of ways to beat a ley line or a rest in peace either. So you're mm-hmm. left doing what this deck is doing, which is like sideboard Wismare and wear tear, and that's just not going to get it done. That's a big yikes. <laughs> uh, next up, we have Wames playing some ad nauseum, and there was a time when you liked ad nauseum, but uh, I assume that time has passed. I think so. I mean, like I really like ad nauseum when there's some kind of like attacking going on. And I, I think the period where I was into ad nauseum was the period where Bridgevine was everywhere. And there was a lot of like, and a lot of hollow one where it's just like, here's my linear combat deck that has no disruption. It just puts bodies on the battlefield. What are you going to do about it? In that environment, I love ad nauseum. Uh, you know, that's what drove me to it in the first place when I was responding to zoo decks. I will say there's almost no Liliana of the Veil. We talked about Jund and Black Green being very poor. That speaks in ad nauseum's favor, to be sure. But those decks are overrepresented for how good they are. That's the problem. And you're going to get paired against them in the early rounds when you're picking up ad nauseum just because there's too many of them for their win rate. Uh, so you're not even able to really take advantage of you know, the fact that those decks are absent unless you get a little lucky in your pairings lottery. I would still shelve this deck for the time being. It's slower than the other linears and not responding to the right set of threats right now. Yeah, and also when KCI goes off, they can now just kill all of your permanents. So. Yes, they can. It's not like Angel's Grace really actually buys you a turn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, they have outs. Next deck is from The Rake, and this looks like basically the list that Bobby Graves got second with at uh, the Atlanta Regionals. And yeah, just Ar- Mono Red, Arclight Phoenix, uh, some Runaway Steamkins, Lava Spikes, Two Gut Shots, Sideboard... Dragon's Claw, Tormont's Crypt, Shattering Spree. How do you feel about Shattering Spree? And like, I guess uh, this person has Shattering Spree and a Braid. So pretty good mix of artifact removal. Yeah, I, I like the artifact removal on the whole. This is not a deck I actually care for all that much. It's the same thing where it's like, here are my creatures. My clock's not that fast. I don't disrupt you in any meaningful way. Uh, you better not stumble because you're dead. But if you don't, I'm going to lose every single time. And the artifact stuff is helping a little bit with that in some instances. And then there's some, you know, land hate and Alpine moon and blood moon, but on the whole, not exciting me all that much. Doesn't seem to have the right wrinkle I'm looking for in this format. You should really like goldfish this deck. What's it going to tell me? It's not a turn three deck. I mean, there's, there's not many turn threes smushed together here. I believe it's a consistent turn four. You just don't like runaway steamkin. 
Well, there's there's that too. Uh, do you believe this is faster than a turn four deck? How many turn three kills have you had with this this kind of build? I mean, if we're talking about virtual kills, hella. <laughs> right, right. But I mean, I think your your turn two kill with amulet against burn was a virtual kill. Uh, it, it was real, actually. Man, two amulets? You just had it all? Yeah, blessed. Yeah, it must be nice. All right. Next up, Elephant, one man. Band Spirits. I think these decks still need to figure out what the optimal build is. I mean, I see a lot of people rocking the the three Aether Vial, which I think Strosky was the first person to do. And mm-hmm. the, the Spirits package that people are playing is just all over the place. You see like a lot of one and two ofs. And I don't know, maybe it is just one of those decks that like you need like another really good spirit print and then it'll be easy to figure out what the best cards are. But it does seem all over the place. So you're kind of opposed to the weirdo, like one of Geist of St. Traff, one of Rattle Chains, one of Remorseful Cleric uh, in a deck which, you know, it doesn't have a ton of influence over the order in which its cards are going to be presented. There's Collected Company to dig you deeper, but like, I don't know, when I'm ca- casting Collected Company, I'm just praying for two creatures. So I don't, I'm not making any meaningful yeah. decisions ever, so. Well, I guess you could make the argument that you don't necessarily want to draw more than one Rattle Chains or more than one Geist, but realistically, Geist just is a clock in a deck that is about disruption and like pumping your team. So it's just, it's like a weird inclusion. It's just like a sideboard card main deck for some reason. I don't really know why. Yeah. The one instance I did play this deck, I, I had it only in my sideboard. The main deck guy strikes me as a little bit strange. You always see it. It's always there. And and the deck continues to find success. That's not always the best reason to do something, but it it seems to be fairly agreed upon at this point. Yeah. And then you have two reflector mages, which is kind of a feel bad because they're not spirits. And then the sideboard has a couple Thalias, which are also not spirits. And it's like, man, I, I hope for the day when the format is actually just weak to all the human disruption. So I could like play humans and be happy about it and not have to like mix the two decks. Right, right. Yeah, there's some weird stuff going on when you have to tolerate both. But your your mana base is very different from the human's mana base. And that's another huge point of appeal here. You get to play actual spells in a lot of instances and Stony Silence, Rest in Peace, uh, strong cards right now. And, uh, you know, another feather in Bant Spirit's cap, to be sure. For sure. And obviously there are trade-offs with having to play a bunch of fetch lands and shock lands and stuff, but ultimately mm-hmm. probably worth it. Yep. Ne- next deck is Spider Space with... Uh, almost mono white death and taxes light green splash for noble hierarch this is a fun thing that i do whenever i see any decks like this i like to count the amount of sources for turn one noble hierarch how many do we have here 12 does that satisfy you no of course not i mean there there are going to be draws where you know you have uh turn one vial instead and then it doesn't really matter but mm-hmm. like Two copies of Stirring Wildwood, are those really helping you more than just Turn having one. untapped green? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, I- I'm not super interested in debating it just because, again, this is either worse humans or worse, worse spirits, whichever one you want to kind of cast your lot in with right now. Uh, I'm inclined to say this is like worse spirits because it has more similarities there. Different styles of disruption and not a style I like quite as much as what's going on in other places. Yeah, there are matchups like Tron where if you draw Arbiter plus Ghost Quarter, cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, then, you know, the advantage bar moves over to your side or whatever. But there are so few cards that actually matter in matchups like that. And 
on top of it all, your creatures are so bad that you just almost automatically lose to humans. Right. So right. It's that's a no for me. Yeah, you have to be picking on a very specific metagame for something like this. Next deck is by Ramp, and this is the War of Invention prison deck that is not Lantern. Is this deck good? I don't know. It seems to do okay. <laughs> it does seem to do okay. I, I also don't know if it's actually good. I like kind of want it to be. It's it's doing a lot of the types of things I love. I've never actually played with this deck before. We've seen it floating around. Uh, it's definitely you know been part of the format for a little while now. If you could sell me on these random artifact bullets actually being good against the combo decks while having eight copies of Ensnaring Bridge for everything else, I mean, I'd, I'd kind of be about it, but... Yeah, that's the question, right? How effective are these disruption pieces? Are they actually winning you the game? And I don't know the answer to that. Yeah, probably not. That'd be my guess. It does seem a little easy, right? <laughs> like, it was that easy. You just throw a couple of these artifacts in your deck and you have good game against everyone. At some point, I will check this deck off my bucket list. I don't think I'm going to be in for a very fun day, to be honest with you. I, I don't think there's a lot of magic being played here. But I do like that decks like this exist in modern. They're always interesting. Yeah, me too. Uh, next up, Noctis? Yeah. Okay, cool. Burn. Uh, I mean, what do you have to say about Burn? It, it's slower than the other linears. You laid out the set of circumstances under which you want to play Burn. That does not feel like what we're doing right now. And I don't think Burn appeared in this metagame analysis. Is that correct? Oh, there it is. Yeah, it has a 45% win rate with actually one of the biggest sample sizes. 273 matches played, only 45% win rate. That sounds right to me. Burn is historically overrepresented in the same way that like Jund and Black Green are overrepresented. Not a buyer in this deck. There are some specific circumstances under which I want to be playing Burn. You did a nice job identifying them earlier. I don't think this format is basically in line with any of those circumstances. Next deck, Alma playing Jund, Dark Confidant. I still mostly feel like this is not really a Dark Confidant format, although looking at the decks with the biggest sample sizes, like Confidant actually seems pretty good against those decks, but... I don't know. I, I I find it hard to believe that Confidant is actually a better clock than Grim Flare, given that you just can't you can't like use the Dark Confidant cards to just completely grind your opponent into dust based mm-hmm. on what these combo decks are doing. So I think you would rather just have the Grim Flare clock. I've experimented with both. Um, I've even done like splits before. That's pretty non-committal and almost certainly incorrect. So it is hard to say. Uh, I think I like Confident better right now just because I do think card quantity matters in some matchups and the, the ones where it doesn't matter, you just might not have any say over the game anyway. Like you're just trying to assemble these weird pieces of cards. And I guess Grim Flare does contribute to that a little bit more successfully, but I don't know. Look, nobody wants Jund to be better than I do. I, I love playing Jund in these formats. Uh, it's one of my favorite styles of magic. I just don't know why this is good, though. I don't know why this is what I want to be doing. I think it gives you the illusion that you're influencing your matchups a lot. But the fact is you're just always playing from behind and like scrabbling for every single little piece you can get. And that's what is contributing to that feeling and that emotion. Uh, That doesn't make it the correct choice. 
I think that's kind of bad. I, I would like to see Jun be better. I, I hope at some point it becomes better and gets to have some influence over the metagame. Because I, I think that's a good looking modern when Jun is a successful deck. Not when it's the best deck. That can be problematic too. But I like when it has some influence over what's viable. And uh, I don't think that's the case right now. I, I think it's just kind of an afterthought. Next deck is Benny Hills, Black Green Midrange. Black Green gets some cool things like Nile Spellbomb and Field of Ruin. But in in artifact-heavy format, I think I like the Kolagon's Command type of stuff. You get access to Ancient Grudge in the sideboard if you want it. Uh, with these midrange decks, I think Lightning Bolt and Raging Ravine affecting your closing speed matters a lot too. I like that interpretation. If this was a heavy Tron format, then maybe you could sell me on taking this kind of approach, but we haven't been there for a little while now. So yeah, I, I agree with your assessment. Yep. Next up, Wuzzle King with Postmortem Lunge, Duskwatch Recruiter, Vizier, Devoted Druid stuff. Part of me still feels like this deck should win more than it does. Like it, it's destined to take down a large tournament at some point just because it's... It should, right? Yeah, it's just like a very... Again, it's linear. Like it's it's creatures, but linear. It's looking to set up the same thing over and over and over. It does so with a lot of regularity and a lot of efficiency. And it just doesn't seem to ever quite get there. I, I mean... I don't know. What's what's your takeaway? Why is this deck not finding the kind of top tier success that I think a lot of people thought it would when this combo kind of came to light? Ballista's really good against you. And I don't know. I, th- I feel like that's that's kind of about it. In theory, this deck is doing a much better job of uh, threatening like very fast kills and Looking mm-hmm. at this deck list too, it's like most, like basically all the combo pieces are green, and then you have white to actually cast Vizier of Remedies. It makes me wonder if you're not supposed to be playing stuff for consistency's sake, like Serum Visions or even Faithless Looting to go with the postmortem lunges. Wow. Like, I'm, I'm kind of down to try that actually, and just less nonsense too, because it's like, is this deck really benefiting from one Kitchen Finks? I don't think so. Yeah, it's it's hard to say. I, I kind of buy Eidolon of Rhetoric. Like there are some decks that are just cold to that card in game ones. So that one I'm okay with. The one Kitchen Finks seems a little uh, well, less like, impactful. It gives you, the Kitchen Finks gives you a backdoor combo with Viscera Seer and Vizier. But again, like do you want one copy of each of those cards in your deck? Yeah, you're just basically hoping to sack out and draw in the right order or be absolutely flooded with your search pieces. So I could see a cleaner approach yielding some dividends. Uh, the combination of Faithless Looting is an interesting one, to be sure. I don't really know if consistency is this deck's problem, though. And I can't tell you what its problem is. Like I said, I think this deck should be winning. Uh, it should have a top-tier result you know, as a notch in its belt at this point, and it just doesn't. And I, I don't really have an answer for why. All right. We're going to not put this on the bucket list. We're going to put this on the to-do list. Okay. This is a, a thing that we actually have to get done. We have That's to figure it out. Much higher uh, designation than the bucket list. That's a good place oh, for yeah. the deck to be. Bucket list is, you know, we could die without ever doing that. Correct. That's, Correct. that's kind of okay. Yeah. Uh, the next deck is by Z- Snapcaster. Uh, it's Snapcaster with a Z instead of an S, which is kind of cute. Uh, this is nonsense. I hate it. It's a uh, blue red Arclight Phoenix thing in the ice. One Crackling Drake, one Maximize Velocity. Uh, only two copies of Charter Course, a Lightning Axe, two is a Charm, one Gush Shot, random sleight of hands, no thought scours. Just hate it. Hate everything. <laughs> I don't hate quite as much as you do. Playing sleight of hand over thought scour is truly, truly baffling. Um, I like the is it Charms. I think that's an important card for this archetype. I like Thing in the Ice, but I guess everyone's playing that. 
Yeah, that's about it. I, I just can't wrap my head around sleight of hand. That seems incredible to me. I also hate three steam vents, one shiv and reef, only four fetches. Yeah, weird mana base. Wow, I didn't even spot that. Whatever, I'm off it. Let's go on to the next deck. <laughs> you got it. 122 Pablo playing some Jeskai Ascendancy. A lot of, lot of fun ofs here. Uh, Mystic Speculation, Nagging Thoughts, Faithless Looting, Abundant Growth, Lightning Bolt, Noxious Revival, Optopath to Exile, Silence, Swan Song. I forgot Mystic Speculation existed. Didn't we have this discussion about like what this cantrip would look like at some point? I remember debating how you can make a, a, just a scry cantrip and, and what it's worth. Yeah, um, it's awful. Yeah. I, so do you remember when this deck was like, it was a problem that needed to be emergency banned based on the way people were reacting to it. What? So like probe is gone. What else probe happened to this deck? I feel I like something else got banned, but that strikes me as the well, only real major nah, thing. There but, was, there's, there's like treasure cruise and dig man. Come on. Oh, treasure cruise. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But still, even under that configuration, this deck didn't actually prove to be a problem. Like it was ultimately fine, but yeah, that, that does change the equation a little bit. I, I don't know. This deck doesn't do anything that really excites me. Same, a little bit slower linear deck. There's some disruption pieces that are unique um, in terms of like silence and swan song, but unique might just be another way of saying bad in this instance. So yeah, I think so. I think so. uh, Yeah. You could, you can find better ways to combo. Cerulean wisps. Yeah. Not my favorite card. Next deck is by the Johan. Mono white enduring ideal. Is this deck playable? Could this deck be great? No, it cannot. Uh, Damn and it. I've, I've tried many times. I I want this deck to be playable uh, and I want it to be great, but it's the same thing. Like granted, almost no one in the format is prepared to interact with you in any meaningful way, but there's a bunch of decks that will kill you before you get to do the thing you want to do. So it's kind of all invalidated. And I don't, I don't know what to tell you. Like this is cool. I want this to be a thing but it's really difficult for it to be a thing when none of your cards just matter all that much. I guess like for Rune Halo, at least you're doing something early to prevent your opponent from possibly killing you, but not much. That's that's not really accomplishing a whole lot. Well, you have unlifes and ghostly prisons and... Sure, you you have all those things, and in some instances, they will get you to the point where you can ideal, but in other instances, you're just going to die very quickly. Dude, I, I, love, I love Six Crylands, including two copies of New Benalia. Like, you could play off-color temples, right? But just New Benalia in there for for Spice? Yeah, yeah, that's a cool one. (laughs) Strictly worse than some other options, but you save a few bucks, so that's always nice. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, I I want this to be good. I applaud these efforts. I hope someday we get to cast Enduring Ideal and win a tournament with it. But it seems tough, and I'm, I'm not going to pick this one up anytime soon. Next deck is by Cheng, Y-I-W, uh, Grixis Death Shadow, Three Stubborn Denial, Two Teamer Battle Rage, Two Faithless Looting, so basically Ben Friedman-esque. Yeah, so this deck uh, gets lumped in with those answer decks we talked about earlier. This is the best performing of the answer decks that we talked about. It still has a sub-50% win rate at 48.54% across 103 matchups. Uh, there's always talk like this is how you beat up on combo decks, right? That's kind of the uh, MO of these Death Shadow decks is you get a bunch of disruption, early clock, blah, blah, blah. It just has not proven to be true. So, Well, I'm, I'm curious to actually go through and look at its specific matchup spread because that could be true and it could still just be like losing to the fair decks and losing to humans and stuff. So, 
That is we'll true. That is true. And I think probably our sample size is too small to really authoritatively say that here. Um, right. But just a quick browse. It's like posting positive matchups against Bant Spirits, uh, Infect, Jund, Titan Shift, and poor matchups against Burn, Dredge, Hardened Scales, and then a bunch of 50-50s in other places. So a super small sample size, really hard to pull uh, anything really hard from there. And still like a split with humans, not a good humans matchup uh, somewhere. I would say that's probably like sub 50% in most instances. Right. So yeah, I, I don't think you're really picking on the right things, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this deck will prove to be the answer to these combo decks. Or maybe there's a different like fast clock disruption deck. Yeah, like Traverse Shadow or something, which right. is in this deck list dump somewhere. Right. Yeah, we'll get to that. Next deck is by uh, Medvedev, and this is just pretty normal dredge, uh, four Crippling Chill, three Conflagrate, uh, only two Stomping Grounds, as is the usual. No, I always play three Stomping Grounds. What are you talking about? You you bold-faced liar. And then <laughs> uh, sideboard is just four Lightning Axe, four Ravenous Trap, four Nature's Claim, three Ancient Grudge. Just I don't really like that kind of sideboard, but it's just cute. Yeah, no wasted space there. Well, what's your takeaway with Dredge? I mean, obviously this deck has propped up uh, the graveyard-based strategies over the past few months. Are are you a buyer in Dredge overall? If people can't interact with you, then your deck is just busted. Creeping Chill did so much to not only make your blood gas active and make your conflagrates uh, lethal a lot faster, but just giving you that extra life boost was so sick against aggro decks too. Because if you get to untap on turn five or turn six, like your turns just exponentially get stronger and stronger. So the creeping chill with the life buff helped a lot, I think. I think that I agree that creeping chill made the deck much better. My hypothesis is that the way it did so is by polarizing a bunch of matchups, essentially making your good matchups better and not doing a whole lot to affect your bad matchups. I want to play more games before I state that authoritatively, but that seems to be what's going on. You're still vulnerable to someone who comes to beat you as Dredge pretty much always has been. There's there's no real B plan here. It's more of about course. like, are people appropriately respecting this deck? And when we talk about things like main deck, rest in peace, and talk about uh, a bunch of Bant Spirits deck with access to rest in peace and a fast clock, I think respect is being paid at this point. If that's ever not true, though, this deck is just going to steal a tournament every single time. It's like things had oh, to yeah. be perfect for Dredge before. You just had to make the absolute right metagame call. And, you know, one of my friends won a a Moto PTQ with Dredge in a spot where Dredge was seeing almost no play, correctly identifying that there's no graveyard hate right now. I can make this call right here and get rewarded for it. And he did so. And that's going to remain true, but to a greater extent. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if we're a month down the road, two months down the road, and we see a top eight that's like four Dredge decks, because this deck has increased its power level very dramatically. And it's kind of like demanding the sideboard respect at this point. I think you're right. It did make things more polarized where before, even if you didn't have a lot of hate or targeted hate, you could still kind of hang with them. Mm -hmm. And now it's just like, if you don't have hate, like you're just dead, assuming that you're not a turn three combo deck. Yep, absolutely. So kind of scary times. Right. Uh, Next up is Andreas Mueller, who I believe recently uh, pioneered Titan Shift with four copies of Wood Elves. And he is playing Blue-White Spirits, which is a take I kind of like, honestly. What do you like about it? I don't know. Just 
I I don't need to preach to you like how bad collected company can be at no, times, you don't. right? You do not. And I think that Kira is awesome. Like if you're gonna main deck a Geist, you should probably just be main decking Akira. And yeah, you get to play Thalia, which doesn't interact with your collected companies or whatever. And you know, what is the green really getting you besides collected company? Do you actually need it or not? And this deck gets to play things like Moreland Hot and Beautiful. Yeah, click the company, noble hierarchy, your main payoffs. But you're right that you're casting your spells much, much more easily here. We see some deprives in the sideboard, uh, which is Hell yeah. interesting in our three muta vault, uh, Moreland Haunt deck. But whatever, I'm Just sure. Just go it with works it. Out. Yeah, it works. Just out. go with it. Uh, I, but I, I do like having access to your spells reliably. You're going to cast your Thalia's very comfortably. You're going to cast your Rest in Peace and Stony Silence, and those cards are important in the format right now. I mean, look, if you give me a way to never have to cast Collected Company again, I'm I'm probably signing up for it. So I, I could see myself playing this over Ben in the future for sure. Next up, we have Aves with the Traverse Shadow deck that I talked about. This list is super clean. Uh, green, black, splashing a little bit of white for one Ranger VO, 17 lands total, four Bobble, four Mana Morphos, seven removal spells with Assassin's Trophy, which is kind of a, a reasonable pickup for this deck. And... Mm-hmm. Yeah, just 12 creatures, three Liliana the Veil, and uh, one Ranger of Eos to top it off of the 13th creature. So so there is a point cool. where this deck was absolutely broken. It absolutely dominated a GP. Uh, you were playing it in that tournament. Do you see any similarities between the format as it stands now and that era when you were able to pilot this deck to some success? That tournament was basically the Wild West. I think I played, uh, like most of my rounds were against a different archetype. Okay. So I think the format was way more wide open than uh, it has been previously. But also now you have a lot of tribal decks that weren't really around during Vancouver. And those decks are very difficult because you can't really contain them with just spot removal and... Uh, discard and stuff. Right. So you needed to go to things like Team or Battle Rage, which just makes you kind of a bad Kiln Fiend deck in those matchups. So I don't know. Maybe there is a Kiln Fiend deck, I guess, is is kind of where I'm going with this. And I'm not really sure what the game plan is for this deck against something like Humans or even Spirits, where you're dealing yourself a bunch of damage and that just makes you very vulnerable to them swarming around you, even if you're up a couple cards on them. It always comes back to Kiln Fiend. There, there are a couple new pickups for this deck since that era, which I just want to mention real quick. Uh, Damping Sphere, and we see a sideboard Night of Autumn as well. I don't know that that's changing any of the issues that you just mentioned. Uh, I think they still exist, and I don't know how to answer them. I, again, this is the type of deck I want to be good. I just don't know if I buy it. I'm too good for you, Barn, playing KCI. This looks just like a straight canisters list. Yeah, it seems like we have all accepted the gospel of our Lord and Savior canister at this point and are playing Spine of Ishtar, which I think is right. Uh, you get some new loops, you get some interaction. Uh, it it does a bunch for this deck. And I already did my spiel about this deck. I don't need to do it again. It's possibly the best deck in the format. If it's not the best, it's one of the best and uh, if you've been putting it off, I mean, I feel like we did a podcast six months ago where we were like, you yeah, know, we should really learn this deck and <laughs> then sat around like idiots, not learning it that entire time while everyone else benefited. Uh, let's say it again. We should really learn this deck. I'll put it on the bucket list. Uh, I think it should be on the to-do list for sure. <laughs> 
No, I I have a history of doing this in modern with things like Birthing Pod. Mm-hmm. So I'll just stay on brand, keep it consistent. All right, as long as as long as you know your brand. Next up, we have Willie Blake playing some Bogles. Bogles actually having a good win rate, fifty six percent, according to Matt Nelson's data. Yeah, what are we making of that? Where where I, do you see I Bogles think- succeeding? I think it's just another instance of this deck is beating up on the sub 50% metagame while also probably being good against hardened scales. Mm. Uh, I'll again point to a really small sample size. This is, I, I think, the smallest sample size of our top 20 decks. We're only looking at 50 matches here. 50 matches is basically nothing. Um, you can't make any hard conclusions from that. So I'm not going to flip out about the 50, 56% observed win rate here. I don't think it's super meaningful. You know what Bogles does. It's it's very clear what its role is supposed to be. I don't know that I see it right now. Again, I think things are a little bit too linear. But if things get fair, Bogles is always there to get people back in check and make sure they respect the 1-1 Bogle. Next up, we have Lapless Yawn with a slower, no post-mortem lunge version of the Devoted Druid deck. And I think that there are metagames where this is good, where you can play things like Tireless Tracker and Knight of the Reliquary, but this ain't it. 100% agree. I mean, if everything's linear, you want to be more linear. And this is this is designed to outvalue your opponents and be able to fade disruption and, and get through a bunch of removal. And that doesn't strike me as what the format's about. Uh, next up, we have Selfie Sec, who is the... Mardu Pyromancer, Pioneer, and unsurprisingly is still playing Mardu Pyromancer. Nothing too crazy. No Arclight Phoenixes, no Experimental Frenzies in the board. Just a couple Blood Moons, one Nahiri, a Forked Bolt, uh, two Lightning Helix. Just still kind of doing his own thing. So you've still been playing this deck. I, I know we we played a little Modern last week out at Mox, and you were still playing some Mardu. What does your take on Mardu look like right now? It's pretty bad. <laughs> Okay, as long as you're open no, about I, it, that's fine. Yeah, I was I was just trying Arclight Phoenix stuff because that was like the first thing I tried with Arclight Phoenix, but I made a bunch of mistakes in deck building and everything. And I was like, okay, I learned a little bit. Let's come back. Let's revisit this. And now I learned some more things. And now I'm I'm pretty much ready to just hang it up. But yeah, I don't know. I it, if I were playing with Bedlam Reveler, it would not be alongside discard spells right now. I just don't think that's really where you want to be. And they also work very poorly with Arclight Phoenix. Yeah. Uh, 46% win rate for this deck at GP Atlanta. Pretty small sample size again. Good job, friends. Keep it up. Keep martyring, folks. <laughs> I, I don't think you should be doing any type of answer decks. And we've, we've beat that to the ground. This falls under that. So look for something else to do right now. Marty's time will come again. Cut your thoughts uses for Lava Spikes. Sure. Next deck is Darkest Before Dawn with some Glass Dusk Hulks, <laughs> Curator of Mysteries, As For Told Living In stuff. Uh, all things told, this, this deck doesn't seem that heinous. Look, you know I love a goofy Living End deck. I, I do think, like if you were to ask me to choose between this build and the build that I presented a few weeks ago with Mausoleum Secrets, I would put forth the Mausoleum Secrets every time. I think it's more consistent. It has more cyclers. It does all the same stuff. The The missing pieces are kind of like the path to exile and settle the wreckage, but who cares about those cards? Those don't seem so super important to me right now. And uh, Secrets adds a level of consistency as well as a secondary casting mechanism in Yeheni's expertise, which isn't always the best, but is a, 
it's playable. I'll say that. So yeah, it's cute for yeah, sure. Yeah. So I, I do like blue living index. I think there's something there, but I would encourage people interested in the strategy to check out my article from a few weeks ago on the, the mausoleum secret space build. I think there's a powerful engine there and a lot of consistency you can build into the deck that basically does all the things that this deck is doing very well. Well, Path of Exile giving you an out to Meddling Mage and Spellqualler and stuff like that, I think probably does help. But that's why you have the Annie's expertise. And Come on, there's man. also like. Come on, man. <laughs> <laughs> there's also, hold on, there's Main Deck Shriek Maw. There are the Mausoleum Secrets to go find said Main Deck Shriek Maw. Does all of this sound a little slow to you? Isn't isn't that tough? It, it's, it's doable. I, what I said is that I've cast mausoleum secrets for every single potential black card in my deck and you know five's a lot but it's doable it, it happens i mean your deck is mostly cyclers obviously you're getting a bunch of cards in your graveyard so well uh, that's kind of what i like about this is that it's less air it's just like all right let's put a river winder and a right. couple friends into play and you know you're not focusing too much on having to go super wide with architects of will yeah, no, that's true. That's true. Uh, less air, more actual spells. But you could also take that approach to the black deck too, I would say. And you could you could have a fatal push in your deck, right? Like that's yeah. that's not a big ask at all. I think this is just kind of an outmoded version and maybe people aren't quite hip to that tech yet. But uh, it's You get those white explore. sideboard cards though. Uh, you do. You do. You get Stony Silence here. Timely reinforcements. Rest in peace. Yeah, I was looking at that. How do you win? <laughs> I have no idea. That one's crazy. You just hard cast your things after ripping Dredge? Dude, nobody in the format can beat a striped river, river winder. It's basically the best card possible. I don't disagree with you. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I guess you're on like the curator of mysteries beatdown plan, which I've executed. It's it's it exists. It's fine. But yeah, that's that's a crazy addition to your living end deck. Uh, next up, TCG Shin with uh, Red Green Valakut. Uh, I like this deck primarily because it's one of the few decks that can main deck Relic of Progenitus, but that said, it doesn't do a good job of interacting with uh, non-creature things mm -hmm. because your interaction is just Lightning Bolt and Anger of the Gods. Obviously, that changes post-board when you have as many artifact destruction spells as you could possibly want in Red and Green. Uh, so yeah, it's it's like... If, if people are playing mid-range or they're playing a lot of graveyard or if they're playing maybe humans, I think this deck is a good good choice. But if they're playing like KCI, not great. Yeah, there's some weird stuff you can do with this setup, like having access to Damping Sphere is pretty cool. And there, there's some good disruption options post-board. I like that this is kind of a turn four version of Shift as opposed to a turn five version. That's a step in the right direction. But your points are spot on. Your only interactions with creatures and... That's a little iffy. Next up, we have Zirnak with Lantern. Is Lantern good? No. Okay. You want to just move on? Sure. All right. <laughs> the last deck, is, <laughs> last deck is by the Nobodies, and this is another Mox Opal deck. Uh, sort of the Meek Thopter Foundry, War of Invention, Ensnaring Bridge, KCI. I guess there's only one bridge, one KCI, but still. There's got to be a card that you're really excited to see here. One of my favorite magic cards, and I think it's one of your favorite magic cards, too. Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, is it main deck or sideboard? It's main deck. What, Dr. Foundry, Sword of the Meek? Muddle the Mixture. Are you not a huge Muddle the Mixture oh, fan? Oh, I actually hate Muddle. Get if, out if of there's here. Ever, if there's a format where Muddle is good, I'm super excited. But it's just, it's so bad now. 
I didn't say it was good here. I just said it was one of my favorite cards. And the deck I think back to, obviously, is Thopter Depths, which used Muddle the Mixture to find every possible combo piece it could ever want, as well as uh, answers. And it just functioned as combo protection. I have very fond memories of that deck and using Muddle the Mixture to great effectiveness. Should ban everything in modern until Thopter Foundry is good again. I was going to say until Muddle's good, but yeah, we could go back to Thopter Foundry. That's fine. Same, same. Remember when this card was banned? I guess it was Sword that was banned, right? It was Sword, and yeah, I thought that this type of deck would just invalidate creature decks, which it kind of does, in all honesty, but just not in the way that I would want it to, where I do think that for Nile Spellbomb, for Mox Opal, for Mishra's Bobble, for Werve Invention is probably the way to build it instead of like the blue-white control deck I built when it got unbanned. Mm-hmm. So is this going on the to-do list or the bucket list? Oh, this is this is like the I am burning in hell and this is my bucket list somehow. <laughs> like we can we can figure out if this deck is cool or not after I die. Okay. We'll we'll put it on the afterlife to-do list, I guess. Yeah, there you go. I mean, I'll have a lot of time on my hands. So. That's true. That's true. Maybe maybe it'll force me to play on Apprentice or something. <laughs> there <laughs> no, will be no no Magic Online or no Arena where I'm going. No, it, it's Magic Online, but it's like early beta 4.0. Like just, yeah. just the worst version of Magic Online that ever existed. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Takeaways, I guess. What do you got for me? I, I mean, I feel like I beat it to death. Do something linear. Find the linear thing you like. Find one that lines up well with the format. Spend your time with KCI. Get paid. You but know. what if I don't like anything linear? Do you like winning, Jerry? Kinda. Decide what's important to you. If you yeah. want, if you want to be the hero of the answer decks, then you can you can go down that road and try and figure it out. If you just want to maximize your chances at winning. Uh, you know the right thing to do. And it's remained the right thing to do throughout all of modern. Now I got to look at uh, the recent uh, SCG results because I, I did a cursory glance, you know, but I didn't uh, like fully dive deep on them. And granted, this is uh, Vegas versus Baltimore and Roanoke, but. Right, right. Definitely a, a different set of players. And I'm sure that was probably not the biggest tournament. Yeah, well, I know the classic was the standard classic was only six rounds, so right, right. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see if like KCI is actually putting up good numbers, and I don't know. You sound like me right now when presented with very clear evidence that something is true. I don't know why I'm so resilient. Too, it's like obviously I've played like nonsense artifact decks. So. I think you just need to find the one you love. Like that's what it's really about. And if it's not KCI, then you're going to have a hard time convincing yourself to put in the reps. It's kind of like, I mean, I'm saying all this stuff about KCI. I'm probably still playing Amulet. I think Amulet checks a lot of the same boxes, except I love it. And I'm going to put in a bunch of time to play it uh, because I enjoy the games. And I I think that's worth something. Um, But if it was a completely unreasonable choice and not capable of doing these busted turn two things, I would not be exploring it regardless of how much I loved it. I want to find I want to find the best my favorite deck within a subset of a certain style of decks is what I'm looking for, basically. Man, this KCI deck does just look busted. Yep. Just like looking at all the cards. I'm just like, oh, my God. Yeah. Silly cards. Very silly. All right. All right. Fine. Got him. Oh, that's game. No, we have a Wait, question. Wait, no, we have to do a question. Damn it. We do. And we have a good question this week, too. Yeah, we do. But still, that's game. <laughs> <laughs> All right, read me a question. 
All right. So Sam Michaels asks, how does one go about building their personal brand specifically within the MTG community? And I thought this was interesting because, I I mean, I, I guess it's something we've been doing for a while now. It's not something I always do consciously. Occasionally, I think like, oh, you know, this is, we need to make sure we're on brand here and we should respect what our listeners want. But a lot of times for me, staying on brand is just like being myself and and being genuine. Um, uh, What do you think about this question? What's your response? I think that is basically my response is just be yourself. And eventually those things happen. It's like, well, if, if you... You eat a tombstone every day. Eventually, people are going to start saying you like tombstone pizzas, you know, and that's just kind of how things got to be for me. And if I keep building decks and writing reasonable articles and dropping bombs on Twitter or whatever, like that is what people are going to know me for. So just like figure out kind of your niche, what you're good at, and maybe not lean into it super hard because it does have to be authentic, right? But uh, I do think just keep being you and... Eventually, you know, people will figure out that, you know, these are the things that make up you and your brand, if you want to call it that. It feels kind of icky calling it that yeah. because it, it it just it kind of paints a picture of like showmanship. And I think about, you know, Instagram influencers and stuff like that. Right. And it's just like it's it's all kind of dirty when realistically in magic it's like you know matt nass plays combo decks and wears shorts and sam black is weird and he likes sacrificing things right you know like these these are just the things that people end up getting known for and they didn't really hammer it into anyone if anything people latched onto it and kind of made it a meme themselves right sometimes your brand gets established whether you want it to be or not it's just like a function of who you are i'd also ask like why are you asking this question too like what is what is your goal in establishing your brand and if it's in getting opportunities to like write or make content i i would say don't even consider this like just just go do it just go write for anyone who will publish your article and go do a podcast with anyone who wants to team up with you and work on a podcast like like just go practice create live the life you want to live do the things you want to do and then your brand kind of establishes itself. If you're out there, you know, making three podcasts a week, eventually you're going to become podcast guy. And, you know, I I think my own path to this show came from doing a lot of other podcast work in a lot of other places and, you know, working with KYT a bunch. And I used to write for a bunch of websites, uh, you know, certainly a much smaller footprint than something like Star City Games. But I I did the work for a very small audience just for the opportunity to get to talk about the things I was excited to talk about. And I just kind of carried that forward to my work here and my work with Star City and let things happen very organically. I I mean, don't force things, just be you, interact with the game you want to, in the way you want to interact with it and let things happen from there is is the best advice I can give. I will say that there are uh, some people like, Nikachu, who's just the merfolk person, and us, we started, well, I I guess you weren't here when we started, but I think that you very much do encapsulate the message of this podcast, where it's just like, you know, we are a a very spiky podcast, right? It's like we are looking for any sort of way to gain an edge, basically. And we will sit here and talk about numbers and data and metagames and 
And I think that's just a big part of it. And if you do find a niche that you enjoy and you do think is authentically you, you can lean into that and just be like, well, the only thing I'm going to play in modern is Merfolk because that is the thing that I know best. And I have like a solid following of people who want to read about my updates to Merfolk every week or whatever. And I think that's completely fine. Like I could have very easily just went into the the Mardu guy persona after getting second with it at, at the pro tour. And that was also like one of the most well-hitting articles that I've ever had, you know? Mm-hmm. And I, I certainly could have leaned into that. And if I were starting from scratch, basically, I think that would have been not necessarily profitable, but like it would have showed a lot of dividends for, you know, getting people to follow me and whatnot. But the most important thing is like that has that has to be you. You can't fake it because right. you'll just burn yeah. out. Like it's not going to get you anywhere. I mean, I now I'm kind of curious as to whether or not I could fake something like um, I'm really the Brussels sprout guy or whatever, right? <laughs> like, could I actually make that happen? Who knows? Um, that is that is a strange thing to lean into Brussels sprouts. Although I do like Brussels sprouts quite a bit. But uh, so are tombstone pizzas, man. Yeah, I guess that's I guess that's true. I mean, I think I felt a lot of that when I was a lawyer. I felt like I needed to like establish who I was as a lawyer, and I don't think I was anyone. So whatever persona I tried to take on, if I tried to be like super polished and slick and always have a nice suit on, like that felt like I was completely faking it. Or if I just tried to be like, you know, a guy who was really into Supreme Court rulings and you know, whatever very narrow part of legal scholarship, people tend to latch on to certain things and none of them ever really clicked with me. And every time I tried to do it, it felt very forced. It just doesn't get you anywhere. Genuineness is is worth a lot. And even if like you could pull it off, because don't get me wrong, I think I pulled off a lot of those looks as a lawyer. It never felt good though. And it's not a a path to happiness. That's for sure. You feel a lot of... uh, disingenuineness and like pressure and and it just weighs on you after a while. So it keeps coming back to me to just make sure you're doing you and and being super authentic, which is something I know Jonathan over on Head Games preaches all the time. He's huge on authenticity. And I I think it's really sound advice um, for anyone trying to make their way in any field, really. Agree. That's game.